Good morning, everyone. Good morning. I trust you're doing well. If uh, you have your Bibles, I want to turn to 1 Thessalonians. That's a mouthful. It's in the end of the New Testament or towards the end of chapter 4. We'll be there in uh, just a moment. Um, so uh, many of you know, if you are here last week, uh, you heard me talk about the fact that two weeks ago, Betsy and I had a chance to spend a week uh, together with our kids, our adult kids, and uh, uh, our two grandkids near Charleston. They're uh, near the beach. Um, and two of our kids are married, and uh, they both have a baby. So our daughter and her husband have uh, uh, little David, that's five months old, just smiles all the time. Happiest baby I've ever seen in my life. And just really grateful, happy for them. But personally, it's like, that's so unfair because none of our three were like that. And uh, just all the time smiling, happiest baby. And our son and his wife have a nine-month-old whose name is Lydia. Uh, Lydia is uh, motion, nonstop motion, uh, just constantly mobile, um, crawling everywhere. Um, she has this little cart uh, that she'll stand behind and push. She can't steer it, so if she hits a wall or pole, she, you know, she's done. She can't go any further, but she loves walking around and pushing on that. And it, it's fun to watch my kids, you know, as parents. And uh, just to see, like I know with Lydia in particular, uh, our son and, and uh, his wife, you know, they'll hold her hands and come, come on, walk, you know, see if she'll take steps. And, you know, they're awkward. They're not, you know, not very well controlled, but she is doing it, learning how to do that. And, but it brought back quite a few memories, you know, for us, you know, when they were that age and they were learning to walk. And um, it also was just a little, for me, a little humorous that you, you re I realized that they don't realize how much of their life is going to change when she does start walking. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I mean you, you know what I'm talking about here. Because then, you, know, you thought that she was active now, you know, now just wait when she can walk and get wherever she wants to go even faster. Um, you know, it is kind of funny how that is, especially with your first child. Um, you know, it's like, come on, you can do it. And you're helping him up and you're just wanting him to do it and fast and... Um, you know, for us, by the time the third one come around, it's like, sit down, you know. What do you, you know, what's the hurry, you know? Because you know that uh, you'll be chasing them forever once they start uh, walking. So, but they don't know that yet. They're at this stage of just feeling pride that, you know, their little girl is about ready to walk and, and just, you know, come on, you can do it. And they're encouraging her and, and that kind of stuff. And it, it's, it's wonderful to see. And that's the way it should be. Um, and just when parents can, you know, encourage their children and just be excited for them as they grow and develop. You know, well, this idea of parental pride is very much um, seen and observed um, in Paul's first letter to the Thessalonian uh, church. Uh, Thessalonica was a city in Greece, and uh, it was one of the first stops Paul made in his second missionary journey. <clears throat> and in this letter, you can just hear him, the parental, you know, the spiritual parent in him just saying, come on, you can do this. You got it. You're doing great. Keep it up. And so a, a little context uh, for what we're going to read here today, um, and I'm going to actually go, not from Thessalonians, actually to another book in the Bible called Acts. And most of you may know, um, but Acts is a historical account of what happened to the early church, the Christ followers of Jesus, after his death and resurrection. So kind of what happened after that. In the first few years after that, you know, most of the activity is actually within Jerusalem itself or within the, just the surrounding areas. 
And then as over the years went by, they kind of expanded into Samaria. Some of the other regions there and nearby would be present-day Jordan and uh, Syria and those areas. But then Paul gets on the scene. Probably, we're, you know, the timing is not uh, exact, but anywhere, probably maybe about 10 years later, 10 to 13 years later, Paul is on the scene. And if you're familiar with Paul, the Apostle Paul, he's the one that says, all right, I'm, I'm. he was the Daniel Boone of the early Christian movement. You know, the, you know, if you've got people, a person that lives near you within a mile, that's too much. That's too close. So they had to move somewhere else where there was no one there. And that was Paul. So Paul is always expanding into areas and taking the gospel, telling people about Jesus in areas where it had never been taught before. And so the first time he went on a journey, he actually was in the area of Turkey, what is present-day Turkey. And then um, a few, a couple years later, he said, all right, let's go in another one. And actually ended up in Greece. And in that area, he took Silas and Timothy with him. And so when he went and got into Greece, his first stop was in the city of Philippi. And, uh, you know, the great results, people were coming to Christ and just saw the wonderful things happen. Um, but then the officials got involved. They didn't like it. They got, he were arrested and beaten, put in prison. And it, you know, it, like, wow, this isn't good. Um, and so they decided let's go down the road a little bit. And so they went from Philippi, they went to Thessalonica, which is the group that we're going to look at here in just a minute. There again, quite a few people put their faith in Jesus and they believe Paul and, and Silas and Timothy as they talked and, and they decided to follow them. But then there, similarly, a mob of people who didn't like what they were saying and mob formed and fearing for their lives that they actually left and fled and went down to the next town. Um, so it'd be very similar if, if uh, Paul and Silas started here in Statesville and a group of people didn't like them and, and they said, right, let's go. So they went down the road to uh, Winston-Salem. Um, there again, bad things happen. It's so, all right, I'll go to Greensboro. And so they kind of made their way. Ultimately, though, they find themselves in Athens. Um, and the, down towards the capital there, the southern part of Greece. And then Paul actually ends up in Corinth uh, on his own. But what's interesting is that while this is all happening, while they're you know, in Corinth, um, he sends Timothy back up to Thessalonica. Not to Philippi, not to any other area. He sent him to Thessalonica to check on the Christ followers who are there. He's concerned, one, about their physical safety, are they okay, but also about spiritually. Because you know there's a lot of things that have been going on, a lot of other teachers and people who are saying things that weren't right and weren't accurate. And so he wanted to find out. What the, and so like a parent, he was worried about them. These are his spiritual children, if you will. And he was concerned that they were still walking in faith. And so he sends Timothy back, and we don't know how much time elapsed. Um, it could be a couple months. Uh, I mean, obviously these... Um, you know, weren't necessarily right next door. These were some distance away, and maybe it was a few weeks, maybe a month, but Timothy finally comes back and catches back up with Paul in Corinth, and he says, hey, everything's going great. The people are doing well. They're still on fire for the Lord, and they still love Jesus, and they're still doing the things they need to do, and it's really good. And so because of that report, Paul writes a letter to the Thessalonian church, um, and it's the first letter that we write. And we know it's the first letter because later on we find another letter that he writes. And because of the way it's written, we know that this was actually subsequent to the first one. So the first letter is 1 Thessalonians. And they got real creative. The second letter was 2 Thessalonians. Yeah, you got it. Um, the, the people who named these weren't real creative. It just uh, kind of made sense, so they went with it. 
But it's obvious when you read this letter how much Paul had fallen in love with this group of people. He just really was, was excited about them. Um, in fact, he starts his letter and says, we always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. <clears throat> and he's always had these strong words of love and encouragement. He says, may the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and everyone else, just as ours does for you. I mean, these are the words of someone who just loved his people and was just excited about what was happening. And so that's what we've been doing here the last uh, couple of weeks. We've been working our way through this letter, and today we find ourselves in chapter 4. Uh, so if you have your Bibles and want to follow along from verses, start with verse 1, we're going to read through verse 12, um, or your favorite app, or you can follow along on the screen, whichever is your preference. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. And that in this matter, no one should, do, should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now, about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout the Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this letter, a letter that was written 2,000 years ago uh, from Paul to a group of people and how it has been saved and passed down and is now part of our scripture. And we see what Paul's encouraging the people there. We recognize that Paul's words are just as relevant for us today. And we take it as such that these are not just the, the words of a man, but God, you were speaking to us by your spirit through the writing of Paul. Uh, so Lord, help us in these next few minutes as we unwrap this a little bit uh, further, that uh, you would help us to uh, hear your heart and to hear your voice uh, here this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, honestly, it's passages like this that tend to give Christianity a bad name. Live in order to please God. It's one of the ways, one of the things that Paul wrote. I mean, if you really didn't know better, you could kind of, that sounds like God's kind of needy, isn't it? Um, and it also suggests that we have now have a lifetime of trying to satisfy and please this God if he is satisfiable. Sometimes we have this idea that God will lash out at us if we displease him. So you've got this whole dynamic going on this idea of live in order to please God. Another thing Paul says here, he says, avoid sexual immorality. Now, again, for those outside the faith, when it comes to sexual morality these days, there are no boundaries. Um, in fact, telling someone their behavior is wrong 
is actually worse than the behavior itself. You know, basically the, the motto for the day is, I want to do what I want, and I'm going to do whatever makes me happy. So this idea of avoiding sexual immorality is, wait, who are you to tell me what to do, and why should I listen to anybody else? I want to do what I want to do. And then Paul goes on to say, live a holy life. Like, really? Who wants to do that? Where's the fun in that? And that just sounds boring and a lot of rules and regulations. And So this passage is not necessarily a crowd pleaser for those outside the faith. All right? If we're really honest. And yet these words were incredibly important to Paul. Incredibly important to Paul. Paul was encouraging the people to grow in their faith in the midst of uncertainty and adversity that they were facing every day. And these words were a big part of that. So let me just say up front here that God's pleasure does not come through limiting our behavior. That's not what God's about. He doesn't find pleasure in that. God's pleasure comes in seeing us live in a way that is for our own good. One analogy might be you tell your kids, don't play with matches. It's not because you don't want them to have fun. It's not because you're trying to, you know, be mean to them. It's because you don't want them to burn the house down. Um, or, I mean, we don't we want them to be safe, too. For their own safety, we don't want them playing with matches. And because and we realize that accidents happen, things can happen, that's not a good thing. So God, what God is giving us instruction and direction, it's something similar. That there's usually more behind it than, than, than just simply don't do that. And so with that in mind, let's dig a little deeper into the verses that we just read, and let's just see what Paul might be saying. So when Paul tells us that to live in order to please God, what is it he's saying? I think one of the things he's saying is that we need to control our passions. <clears throat> control your passions. <coughs> Excuse me. The New, the New Testament faith communities, the group like here in Thessalonica or the other per, uh, groups that were in Philippi and others, they lived in cultural environments that are very similar to those we live in today. They really were. Um, they were very spiritual, very spiritual people, but their spirituality was of their own making. They really didn't want to follow a God specifically. They just want to kind of create their own way of doing things. And they would literally create gods that would satisfy or kind of align with what they believed, and that's how they lived. They also lived at a time where there was great political tension and because of the Roman power, and so most of the peoples were conquered territories of Rome. So you've got that going on. Racism was very rampant in that area. Um, in that time, that region, um, the corrupt leadership was so prevalent, both within the religious circles, but also within the business community as well. So again, very similar to the things we see if you flip on the nightly news, what you're hearing um, in the news or reading online as well. So here's the thing, though. People from these environments, from these communities, were giving their lives to Jesus. And it was wonderful, and it was really encouraging and exciting but these people came into these communities of faith as is, you know? And so they were bringing with them a lot of these ideas and thoughts and, and behaviors, and they were creating some problems um, within the faith communities. Now, we know this because of Paul's letters. Not necessarily in the verse we just read, but in other verses and other passages in this letter, but also in his other letters, Paul's writing and saying, hey, you're not to be doing that. Hey, there's things we shouldn't be doing. And, you know, but we see that within these church communities, they had, you know, just basic personality conflicts. In one of Paul's letters, he says, hey, tell those two women to stop fighting. 
I mean, I forget their names right off the right off hand, but but I mean, so that was happening within those faith communities. Um, but there's, you know, also we saw that in some letters that he's talking about politics. In one section, he's talking about racism. You know, there is no Jew, there's no Greek, there's no, Gen- there's no we're all one. Um, and in one group in particular, they were suing each other. He said, you shouldn't be taking each other to court. You know, so things like this were happening then within, the, uh, within these faith communities. In one particular, um, Paul writes to the church that was in Corinth. Corinth was a mess, the group that was in there. Um, they had a, 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 a man who was sleeping with his um, stepmother. And, you know, Paul, and Paul, in their comment there, he says, this is a sexual immorality even the pagans don't tolerate. And yet this was happening within the church community, the, the, within the faith community. In contrast to all this, Paul is saying in verse 3, it is God's will that you should be sanctified. Now, sanctification is a, kind of a theological term. It's kind of a big word, but it, it really references the process of being separated from sin and then set apart to God's holiness. So sanctification is that journey from being uh, sinful to being sanctified. Now, Paul, it's interesting that Paul never said, hey, you guys stop hanging out with all those sinful people. He never says that. In fact, he says just the opposite. You know, you need to continue to share Jesus with them. What he did say is that stop being influenced by them. We are called to live by a different standard. And in this specific instance, in this passage, these verses we just read, that standard involves sexual behavior. Now, when it comes to matters of sex in the first century Greek culture, there were no standards. Anything goes, just like today. Now, that cultural perspective of sex tends to be self-centered, and it often involves an exploitation of another for selfish reasons and purposes. And that's not honoring God. All of our behaviors, even those of passion, should honor God. Now, I'll be the first to admit, it's weird putting God, the words God and sex in the same sentence. And I'll be really relieved when I'm done with this point. At the same time, we need to remember that sex was God's idea. He was the one who designed our bodies the way they are. He was the one that made them to look the way they do, to function the way they do. Sex was to be pleasurable not just a necessary evil. But sex was never intended to be a free-for-all. To be clear, we believe the Bible gives guidance for how we're to control our, our passion. And that means that we need to follow God's design for sex, which is one man with one woman within the marriage relationship for life. That was the plan laid out in Scripture. That's the plan in the Bible. And any intimate relationship outside of that would be considered immoral and not appropriate for a follower of Jesus. It also means controlling our bodies and passions rather than being controlled by them. And it means not manipulating others for our sexual pleasures, even those within the marriage relationship. In verse 7, Paul said, For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Control your passions. Another thing Paul is saying to us in these verses is live out love. Paul acknowledged that when it came to showing love for one another, the people in Thessalonica were actually doing quite well. 
he commended them, saying, you're doing this. He, said, he even said, I don't really need to tell you about this. But what he did is he encouraged them to demonstrate the love to one another more and more. Keep it up. Keep going. Paul knew that the love of God that we've received and experienced is now to be lived out in our relationships with others. We've experienced God's love. We're now to show that love in our relationship with other people. Now, he wasn't just making things up so life would be easier. He was encouraging Christ's followers to live out the words of Jesus himself. In John 13, Jesus says, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Think about that. Jesus didn't say, hey, people will know about you, you know, if you're aligned with the right or the correct political party. Or that if you have the best church facilities. Or even if you have great preaching. Those on the outside looking at groups of Christ followers, what will make the biggest difference is how we treat one another. Do we love one another? Do we help? Do we support? Are we there for each other? The command to love is repeated 13 times in the New Testament. And it is to be the identifying quality of Christ followers. Love. It's demonstrated by serving one another. Having mutual affection and respect, which places others above yourself. Caring for others and working for their good. Lastly, in these verses, Paul was telling us to be responsible. Now, one of the challenges that was happening in this time period, remember when Jesus, right before he left, he said, hey, I'm coming back, all right? So those words were passed down, and so what happened is you had people who, for whatever reason, felt like his coming back was like, like really soon, like tomorrow, or it could be tomorrow. And so you had people quitting their jobs, and they were, you know, and so things that were, that we would look at and say, whoa, you know, you're, you've gone too far in how you're wanting to do this. And, um, but that created problems because if you're not working, how are you now eating and supporting your family and paying your bills? And so within the community at large, they were developing a bad reputation because all these people were not paying their bills. And we're now, some of them were actually now beginning to beg for food and it became pretty messy. And, and there, it just became a problem. So in addition to demonstrating love to one another, Paul is challenging the people to pay attention to how they live their lives in front of others, specifically non-believers. And in these words, Paul is telling them, don't create trouble for other people. Don't be that person. Pay your bills. Pay them on time. Don't be a burden. He's also telling them to let your work be your worship and witness. Let your work be as if unto the Lord. Give it your best. Others will notice. And he's also telling them to be responsible and provide for your family. Don't be dependent on other people. So I think these are good words for us today as well. Be responsible. Now, life doesn't get any easier when a baby learns to walk. In fact, it gets tougher their ability to get into trouble actually increases. I think the same is true for those who come to faith in Jesus. And I think most of you would agree that coming to Jesus and giving your life to Jesus, the challenges of life don't go away. 
In fact, sometimes they seem to get worse or they get more. And, and you know, that's, that's not always, uh, that's not fun. How we treat other people matters. In this passage this morning, Paul was encouraging the people of Thessalonica to pay attention to how they treated others. Control your passions, live out love, be responsible. Each one is a reflection of how we treat other people. And when we treat other people well, God is honored. And that makes it holy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the words of Paul. And uh, this idea of living a holy life, uh, sometimes it's... it's, um, for us, it can be wrapped up in different thoughts and emotions because of how we would understand that. And Father, um, as I've come to understand this, living a holy life is simply living a life that acknowledges your presence in it. And because wherever you are, Lord God, it becomes holy. None of us are perfect. We all make mistakes. We all do things we regret. We all do things that are not pleasing to you, that don't honor you. Father, in those times, forgive us. For those things in our past, Lord, I pray that you would forgive us. And Lord, that we would today begin to live a life, do the things that we need to do that would honor you. And for that, Lord God, again, we just thank you for the love we've received, the forgiveness we've received, and your blessing and favor. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.